You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Another Name for Everything, another special episode here where myself, Richard, and Bree are all in our homes uh, in Albuquerque and in Michigan, uh, connecting like this, hopefully to offer something that can be of use as we walk through this pandemic together. And Richard, you know, as we enter in today's conversation about what we can learn about reality is teaching us in this moment, you have posited the idea that reality is initiating us through our collective global suffering during this pandemic. Before we dive in, can you share some framework, some background on what initiation has been historically and how this framing might be useful for a season like this? All right, I'll try. It might take a few minutes. It's a huge historical concept, but because it didn't continue into the modern era in most Western countries, it's used sort of in a figurative way or symbolic way, or, but not a formal way. And if we go back to uh, not just ancient history, but sort of pre-Christian and early Christian, it was universal. What Christians thought is that our sacrament of baptism took the place of it. Mm -hmm. And so, well, we didn't need to do it anymore. But the trouble is, once we started baptizing babies, and you can blame us Catholics for that, uh, the, the hard truths that are communicated in male initiation, and we can talk about why it was largely for males, uh, it, uh, it was deemed not necessary, but uh, it became such a soft thing. I mean, not just soft, but uh, not that effeminate is a negative word, but effeminate. I'm dressing the, the child in lace and white and candles, and uh, it was all pretty. Whereas historically... All the good stuff. <laughs> Historically, uh, you know, a male initiation, which was the only initiation, and again, we'll talk about that later, was rough and tumble. It was, it was anything but pretty. And mm -hmm. so the whole thing got defeated, uh, but, and also by making it a, a necessary way to go to heaven. It became something transactional. Uh, something transactional, something uh, magical, really. I don't know what else to say. And, uh, but but l let me put it in the most simple terms possible. It was deemed necessary by most cultures to let the young man know, usually between the ages of 13 and 17, that there was a bigger world, a deeper world, than the world of, of uh, what, his own ego, his own country, his own needs, his own self. It was like, it was, as even Robert Bly said years ago when we were working together, he said, you and I both know initiation is inherently a religious concept. Hmm. And uh, once it became dismissed by Christianity 
and then secularized in the modern era, it lost much of its power. So from uh, around 1990 to 1995, I read everything I could cross-culturally. Some of those books are in your office, Paul, mm -hmm. uh, about the, the universal phenomenon of male initiation, which led me by 95 to attempt to put together, and that's all I can say, it's an attempt, a five-day experience that would approximate for the modern, postmodern male what our ancestors experienced. And that's now spread to a number of countries, many parts of the U.S. Uh, and all I can say is I hope it communicates what our ancestors tried to communicate. Uh, I, I know a lot of men tell, told me it's, it's changed them forever, and that's what initiation was meant to do. I'll end with the word itself. It was to initiate you to a different world than business mm. as usual. Mm. Knowing that most young males were trapped inside of their own tribe and never knew there was a bigger world than their tribe and their self-interest. So you can see why it, it was religious. It pointed the young male to what we would call transcendence. And one more point, it was almost always tied to nature. Mm. Because the, the one thing the male would respect more than his own tribe and power was the, the absolute quality of nature, especially sending, spending um, an extended time alone in nature. I keep saying one more point, but one more point. If you think this is pagan, at the age of 13, Jesus goes to the, the elders in the temple in Jerusalem, which is right the time of Bar Mitzvah, which was the historic Jewish initiation rite, and he turns it around. He finds that the elders don't have anything to say to him. Mm. So it, that, it's a turnaround story. He's teaching them to reveal that they have nothing to teach him. I don't think that's a stretch. Yeah. And that's exactly our modern phenomenon. Mm. Now, we have a lot of elders, but not a, 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 we have a lot of elderly people, but not a lot of elders. So when he goes at the age of 30 into the desert, nature, by himself for 40 days, what he's doing is self-initiating because the temple system wasn't doing it for his generation of young men. Mm. So it's a judgment on the temple system. And then for him to submit to the offbeat initiation rite of John the Baptist, a quasi-drowning ceremony, uh, and we've, of course, prettified that, made it legitimate, but there was nothing legitimate 
Hmm. about leaving the temple and going down to the River Jordan and there uh, being initiated into a divine world. Hmm. Let's just put it that way. Mm -hmm. So that's extremely oversimplified, but I know you can lead me from here. That. I think that is such a powerful image for us and the, even the way you just wove it with baptism because because what you're saying is that initiation as you said so well is about waking up to a bigger reality. And and that waking up process um as in as in the ritual of baptism involves a a, a sort of dying before we die, right? It's a experience that allows us to taste some of that ultimate truth. Excellent, excellent. That phrase, dying before you die, was found in many cultural male initiations. Mm. The boy must die before he dies, and then he'll know how to die and yeah. recognize it can do him no harm. That um, One of the things that I appreciate about what you're saying in that dying before you die is that I think um, many of us as women experience that process of initiation, can experience it through childbirth. There's mm -hmm. other ways that we experience it as women, but um, that sense of, of losing control, of realizing that you know it, it's not just about you and your ego and what you want. Many of us as women experience that when we become mothers, <laughs> and it is a death. It is a total death process, and yeah. With this um, view of initiation and, and how you're um, powerfully connecting it to this moment, you have talked about the fact that there's five essential messages. Um, and, and I think what we'd like to do during this podcast is dive into each of those essential messages. But we wondered, yeah, we wondered if maybe you could just give us an overview of those five messages and how how this moment of being, um, you know, quarantined and this moment with the pandemic in your eyes is a moment of initiation. And now it's happening. This is why it's so unique. It's happening globally, nationally, communally, and not just individually. Although that is the way the tribe was initiated with its own age group. They went through it as a group. Well, listen, what I did when I was reading all those books is I took notes for, I mean, that five-year period. What is it they're trying to communicate by these oft-times strange ceremonies and sayings and uh, chants and rituals? And then I had them all, I don't know if I even have those papers anymore. But I, I looked at them and tried to line them up. And I came up with four, five themes that kept returning, even though in culture after culture, they were communicated in different ways. But I remember one uh, book on the phenomenon of initiation. He said the conclusions were so uniform that you could think there was someone in New York City sending out emails to all continents to saying this is what you better tell the young man because if he doesn't get this message uh he's a loose cannon in in the in the 
tribe in the in the uh, group he will live for himself and uh, I mean you look at our culture right now does that need much proof the way the male tends to operate just it's all about climbing climbing succeeding winning wars running races so well, I'll just state the five in a straightforward manner. The, uh, the, the five-day rites of passage became an encounter with these five truths in a ritual way. Number one, life is hard. Number two, you're not that important. See, this is in, this is very hard to teach in the modern era because I know we're all just the reverse self-esteem courses and you're wonderful, right. you're special. Right. You, it was just the opposite. You're just a little shit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are not that important. The one that many men like the most, your life is not about you. Mm. Now, I know you're going to bring me back to it, so I won't take off on that. Uh, you're not in control, which certainly this pandemic is teaching us. Right. And the uh, fifth and the most obvious, but yet the hardest one of all, you are going to die. And so if a, a boy left the initiation right, without a kick in the chest realization of the truth and the inevitability of his own death, he really was not initiated. Now, I could go through the four Gospels, and you're going to see Jesus is a classic initiator. That's what he's doing with the 12 apostles. This is not pagan at all. But uh, because we only have an hour together, I won't do that. But I want to at least point it out for those of you who are Christian to think of the uh, proper scriptures that are making these very points mm. again and again. Mm. So those are the five great messages. Now, I should say one other thing. We called them the negative messages, although we didn't tell the, when I ran it, I don't know what they do now. I hope they do some of the same things that I did. I hear they do. Uh, we didn't call them the negative messages because we wanted them to have their full impact and for men to feel, ooh, 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 you know, <coughs> that hurts. And uh, that they're not really negative they're reality-based. <laughs> they're, they're realism, uh, just like Jesus' way of the cross is. So uh, let me stop, and you take me from here. Thank you, Richard, for distilling those. And um, you can probably hear in the background that let the, the truth of life is hard is happening right outside my doors. My children are shrieking <laughs> but um in that in that light uh if we could start with life is hard um you know so much of our society and culture is wrapped around uh avoiding pain 
and sand in any rough edges to create a sense of comfort at almost all times. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we lose when, when we avoid this hard truth that life is hard? What's lost in culture and society? Well, understandably, and I'm sure God understands, too. Uh, I mean, I was raised in a comfortable lower middle class family where you just get used to it and think it's the norm and think you have a right to it. It's not just comfort, but it's convenience. Those are a little different. Mm. Anything that's a little inconvenient Mm. becomes an irritant. So we go out of our way on those days to make everything not so convenient for the young men. It's like boot camp, I guess, or what the novitiate I went through in 1961 had a lot of elements of initiation. So the, the point seems to be, if you don't tell the male that life is hard, he'll do everything he can to make it easy for himself. And I, I think that's true. He'll, he'll seek comfort, he'll seek uh, the top, not the bottom, the big, not the small, the rich, not the poor, go through the whole list. Now, the phrase I used to use, I don't know if they still use it, was the young male builds his tower, his tower of self-importance, power, education, uh, looking good in, in whatever field he wants to look good in. And I did it too. I went off to the seminary which was my own way of looking good. It's, it, there's nobody who doesn't do it. And by the way, you've got to do it. <laughs> but it's just the higher you build your tower, the farther you have to come down. And so what initiation did is warn the young male between 13 and 17, don't build it too high because it becomes an illusion. It, it, uh, it works against you instead of for you. I, st- I still think you look good, Richard. You're still in the business of looking good. <laughs> Just, I combed my hair this morning. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, what you're saying, though, is, is really brought to light these days with um, – Watching how we're all responding to this experience, um, one of the things I'm aware of is how uh, unaccustomed we are in our culture to being imposed on in any way, to to having our freedoms uh, be uh, constricted. And, and it's interesting to watch that, to see how people are responding to that sense of, what do you mean we have to stay home? What do we, what, you know, we can't leave, you know? And it is a major shift. I, I want to acknowledge it, but um, you know, how can we lean into this this moment of recognition of initiation that you're inviting us into, uh, and not just focus on self referential distraction and entertainment while we're in this time of quarantine? Mm. Well, maybe just by allowing us to say these kinds of things, not thinking this is a total waste this period, a total inconvenience, but spiritually speaking, and I know that's easy for me to say, because as of now, I don't have the coronavirus, and 
I'm here in my little hermitage. But we've got to see this as opportunity and as opportunity for cultural initiation. Uh, I think that's the way God would want to use it. If I can speak for God, who am I? But God isn't going to miss an opportunity like this when we see the immense superficiality hmm. of Western civilization. Oh, what's that? That's the emergency alert. They're just testing it in New Mexico right now. I just got mine too. Well, let's take that as a symbol. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so you heard it in your house? Yeah, it came in on my phone here too. Okay. So we just got an alert from our city. Uh, just testing though, we think. Did I finish my thought? I, I hope I did. Uh, lead me further. Yeah. Um, taking this, this truth in, in vain of not only what's happening right now, but also that Jesus modeled this in his own life. And how can we, how can we lean back on the historical Jesus and uh, mystics of past as ways of applying this to our context today? Yeah, what I see Jesus doing as a master initiator is he's proactively trying to lead the disciples into what we now call the cross, even though the cross hadn't happened yet in their lifetime, so they wouldn't have known if, if you use that word, I doubt it. But then we have almost in comical fashion them fighting him on it every step of the way. You know, wanting to sit on his right and left side, always wanting to climb up, and he's talking about going down. It's again and again. In Mark's gospel, there's three major encounters where right after a talk about descending, proactively moving into the pain of being human, they talk about climbing up. It's, it's really, I think, meant to be laughable mm. when, once you understand. He's being the classic initiator. They're being the classic boys who, uh, <laughs> you know, they want religion for the sake of status. Mm. And um, they want to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. It's all about climbing. So, uh, that's what's amazing to me is that Jesus got away with it as much as he did. <laughs> and thank you for forcing me to connect it with that. So people don't think this is some new age idea from New Mexico. Uh, uh, it isn't. It's quite traditional. And uh, I don't know how we're going to retrieve it. Hmm. That this is necessary wisdom. Without it, cultures tend to self-destruct. Hmm. I mean, you look at the, the international scene today. I'm not going to mention countries. But you think the amount of very stupid world leaders. <laughs> I mean, really laughable world leaders. Latin America, Europe, North America. Uh, Asia, Africa, there's not a single continent 
that doesn't have a, a sizable number of men who shouldn't be in third level management, you know? Yeah. You'd say, how did they get up there? They know nothing about wisdom because they weren't taught wisdom. And they think they can lead a whole nation by a philosophy of money, power, success. That's what was supposed to be, uh, the, sp the young man was supposed to be disallowed, that illusory vision. And that, that people we call ancient peoples are primitive peoples already recognize that is is what led me to just keep reading more books more but there it is again there it is again there it is again i mean in out of the way places like new guinea it still holds on <laughs> you know and we'd say oh well they aren't very advanced and maybe in some ways they aren't uh, but in some ways they are same with Nepal. Uh, Nepal is where it seems to have uh, sustained itself the longest in actually seeking wisdom more than effectiveness. Uh, but most cultures, effectiveness won out. Now, when the Zen monasteries were dominant in Japan, um, I guess we had a good taste of it. Can I add one more point? I don't mean, uh, before I gave the initiation rites, for about a, another four or five year period, when I first had moved to New Mexico, I was giving retreats on what we called the four male archetypes. And this was based on the research of scholars like Robert Moore, who's now deceased. And he said, you read all of the, uh, mythologies, legends, stories of the world, and there's always four characters in every major story. There's a king or a leader. There's a lover or a romantic figure. There's a warrior or a fighter. And there's the wise man. Merlin would be the one who probably is most familiar to Western readers. And boy, did he make his case. Once he wrote that, we all started reading the books, and there it always is. The reason I want to bring it up now is another reason that initiation died out, and it's most apparent in Africa today, is as we lost touch with the wisdom of the king, the wisdom of the lover, and the wisdom of the wise man, or the magician, as they called it, the only initiation rite that really hung on in Africa and to some degree in Islam was the warrior. Uh, and really in the Crusades and the Inquisition of Christianity. We kept idealizing the warrior. And he was initiated, boot camp, for example. But when the, when the warrior is not balanced by the lover and the wise man and the father figure, who's the positive name for the king, 
you have very, very stilted, incomplete, really ineffective initiation. Uh, so I know that's a big chunk. I, I'm afraid I'm talking too much, but I want, no. you, I want you to get all the pieces. Um, so uh, the thinking person like you two are will will be able to fit them all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm so glad you brought the, the archetypes into this conversation because um, I think we can't move from life is hard into you are not that important without having an understanding of how we tend to over-identify with one role mm. or right. one right. thing. <laughs> and, and life right now is offering us the opportunity to notice how overly identified we are with st- you know, with status or with the warrior or with the king energy of wanting to have everything in control the way we want it to be. The dark king, of course. I didn't even get into that. There's the light yeah. and the dark of each one. Yeah, go ahead. Well, that's that's so beautifully nuanced because what I what I feel the the opportunity is for us is to see how um, how noticing those different archetypes d- to know that. We are healthy when those archetypes are alive within us. In other words, when we over-identify with one or make one the whole thing, it falls out of balance. And so your statement of saying you're not that important is also an invitation to, to a kind of a great equalizer of where are you overly identifying within yourself, but also in, in, in status hmm. and in, in work. And, um, I'm wondering, Richard, how how the this moment with the coronavirus um, is helping us to see that that we individually are not that important, but rather as a collective, we're all being impacted by this. So how how can this moment um, allow us to see how how that that you are not that important is true? It feels like it might be one of the major messages, as we're all realizing. This virus is moving around the world and no respecter of borders or boundaries or ethnicities or religions or genders or richness. Uh, I, I think that is coming through to people that we as individuals are negligible. <laughs> uh, now, I know in the modern age, the postmodern age, we're not allowed to talk that way, but uh, it's, it, I'm afraid it's just true. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean God doesn't care for the individual. He said, uh, uh, Jesus says, not a single sparrow can fall from its nest, and God doesn't care about it. But he does allow the single sparrow to fall from its nest. Uh, there's been a lot of writing lately. When you lived in Spain, Bree, did you ever get to Portugal at all? Yes, every Thanksgiving. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Uh, the famous Lisbon earthquake and tsunami. And it was a huge, huge uh, defeat for Christianity all over Europe. Because apparently, if I'm right, tens of thousands of people women and children were killed 
instantly. Hmm. And the European, at that point where Christian faith was at its supposed height, just could not believe that a loving God could do this. It, it must have been apparently horrible, whatever happened in Lisbon. Um, so we're getting our own little taste of Lisbon now, hmm. where uh, the individual is uh, not that important. <laughs> not in the eyes of God, but in the eyes of, let's just call it reality. Hmm. Reality will have its way. And um, there's an objectivity to reality. Maybe the, our word for that objectivity to reality is, is now science, <laughs> our medicine. I'm, I'm only laughing as, as you're talking because I'm thinking about how all the things that we love to hang our hats on, like, oh, I went to such and such school, I have this degree, this is my job, I'm so important because look at how busy I am at work. Like all of the things we love to hang our hat on that make us feel important are being stripped away right now. It's true. It's just true. I mean, uh, yeah. here I'm used to being a public face, and now for almost a week I've been here by myself, no one praising me and no one <laughs> listening to me, although you're trying to take care of that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we got to get back to basics. Who are we? Mm. Mm underneath our titles and our clothes and our effectiveness. Yeah, in that spirit of non-identification, Richard, I'm wondering if you could help nuance a little bit with that, with that truth that we are created in, with the, in the divine image and that we're bearers of that, which gives us inherent dignity. How do you hold that in tandem with you are not that important, just so that folks don't lose sight of both being true? Well, uh, you're, what you're bringing in, Paul, are what we call the five positive messages. <laughs> now, if you don't mind, let's hold off. Definitely. And do those later. Because, and that was my intention in the rights. Don't, don't get so positive, Paul. <laughs> yeah. I'm, looking for, I'm, lo I'm looking for a silver lining somewhere. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's acceptable. But I deliberately would let the men sit with this for a certain time and only on the final morning the symbolic of easter it was always on sunday morning were they given the five positive messages now we're going to have that on the daily meditations the week after next after a whole week on the negative messages but we're not at least i don't think i edited them the other day I don't think we're going to tell them the positive ones are coming. <laughs> uh, so they just sit there. You know, here's a time for another piece. The only directly remaining piece of ancient initiation rites that made its way into Christian liturgy was Ash Wednesday. And that wonderful verse from Genesis uh, was used. You came from the dirt, and you're going to return to the dirt. Mm, so In beautiful. initiation rite after initiation rite, the young boys who were, uh, had to do this naked, 
they had to roll in the dust and the elder would tell them that very thing. And isn't it interesting that that held on? Mm -hmm. Of course, in highly abbreviated form, it is, doesn't have much drama to it anymore, um, with a cross on the forehead. But the message is still there. And what amazes me as a Catholic is how many people show up on that day. Is this almost a recognition that we know we need a little defeat? Mm -hmm. You know, and then I watch CNN on the evening of Ash Wednesday and Chris Cuomo and all the Catholics, they still have. <laughs> and I, I really admire them. They don't wash it off their forehead, which the nuns told us. Forgive me, but the nuns told us, now, don't you wash it off. You let those Protestants see <laughs> that we believe in death. <laughs> Make sure everyone sees the status symbol of, of the fact that you are going to return to dust. Let's make sure we elevate that status. <laughs> but uh, that was the, the final message. You're going to die. Another common part of it found in not all cultures, but many, was the day of dying, which is actually toward the beginning. Uh, the young man had to spend some hours digging his own grave. Uh, just deep enough so that night he could sleep in it. He had to spend one night in his own grave. Yeah, imagine, imagine. Yeah, that symbolism is so powerful. Um, and I'm reminded, Richard, of the, the Ash Wednesday we had this past year at the CAC where someone had put a candle in the ashes and so they were they were oh, yes. go ahead yes and how much that how symbolic that was because i had just happened to be the first person who dipped my finger in and i yes. just felt the heat and then here we are marking one another with this hot ash <laughs> yeah. wow. which took it to a new level for me which i really appreciated <laughs> um so now that we've come to the terms that we're not that important. It, it seems like a natural segue of your life is not about you. And, you know, you write about this so beautifully about how we have some exemplars of this truth in our Christian tradition with, you know, most explicitly with Mary's courageous fiat and Jesus' final prayer, let it be done unto me. Can you speak to the consciousness that allows that kind of particular prayer in, partic in participation to the whole? Like, how do we, how does that consciousness what does that look like that allows that kind of revelation of your life is not about you? How does that come forth? Let's use, Paul, uh, modern psychological language in this case, and one scripture to uh, John 12, 24. Unless the single grain of wheat, uh, you know, loses its shell, as it were, goes beyond being a single grain of wheat, uh, it will not bear any fruit. Uh, we have to experience our radical oneness with all of humanity, with everybody else, and not keep defending and promoting this individual self, which, I mean, the Buddhists have the courage to say, it's an illusion. It doesn't exist. The only thing that exists 
is the common force field. Now our word for the common force field was the body of Christ. And the, the phrase that Paul uses is en Christo. To live en Christo is to live in the common force field. But we've thought of salvation for some hundred years now as individual people going to heaven. Whereas uh, I think a, a much better understanding of salvation is falling into a, a common field. It's a participation experience, a communal experience, where I by myself am not big enough to, to be the Christ. But if I'm connected to you and to everybody else, that's the Christ. Huh? So the phrase I've usually used is, it's about being connected more mm. than being correct. So. One way of saying that, and that was the first place I used it, was in the initiation, right? Your life is not about you, Paul Swanson, Bree Stoner. You are one instance, one moment, one manifestation, one epiphany of what is happening everywhere, mm -hmm. all the time. And there's six billion other ones that are also another epiphany. And this is why we must love one another mm. because that's the only way you can remain connected to the Christ. So no longer is, is the spiritual journey a private relationship with Jesus. It's, and we were allowed to think that way. I mean, Catholics came on retreats for years, you know, and you'd say, well, now why did you come on this retreat? I want to deepen my personal relationship with Jesus. Yep. That led them down, down a very mistaken path. Mm. It really did. That, that they could do this independently of anybody else. And uh, you good evangelicals, had Jesus as your personal boyfriend. <laughs> it just didn't, it didn't change the world. Let's just say it that way. Because it didn't even change the individual at any deep level, you know. Because he's my boyfriend, and, the, and your job was to prove that he was another people's boyfriend, and they were going to go to hell. You know, it put, <laughs> put us right back into the competitive game. So mm. your life is not about you. You are about life. And when I used to say that on the initiation rites, I'd just be quiet. I said, no, think about that. Think about what I just said. Your life is not about you you're about life can you make that mental switch and it was amazing how many men did it's such a it's such a powerful and crucial it is. teaching it is. i mean I have I've reflected on the fact that that scripture of the the grain of wheat unless the grain of wheat dies and goes into the ground so much because I, it's such a perfect metaphor for us to think about we have to die to thinking of ourselves as these separate individuals 
to be able to connect with that deeper reality of how um, interconnected we are. And I'm also thinking of the, you know, this, the um, teaching of Jesus saying, you know, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's and, all initiation language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so powerful. And, and, and in particular, I think in this moment, it's, it's realizing that our choices to, to follow the guidelines, to, you know, stay home, to engage online and connect in new ways, it, that is an, it's inviting us into that reality, right? Because these are not choices we're making just for our own protection, but rather for the collective. Common good. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think it's going to happen for a lot of people during these weeks, months, whatever it is, because there's no way, there's no place we can run from it, I don't think. Hmm. And with that um, recognition that our life is not about us, we are about life, we begin to realize your next kind of teaching and initiation, which is that we're not in control, (laughs) which has always been true. That has always been true. But we we lull ourselves to sleep and think uh, time and time again, we control our tiny little kingdoms and then we forget. We fall asleep again and we forget and we think that we are actually in control. And so in this moment of being quarantined, I think many of us are realizing like, oh, we really are not in control. Look at our our huge systems, our, you know, our, our whole economy. Boom. <laughs> Boom, yeah. Uh, And that's particularly true for those of us from developed countries. And, uh, you know, I don't know how this is going to play out, but right now, uh, if I'm hearing the statistics correctly, percentage-wise, the countries who are suffering the most are Spain and Italy. And America will probably surpass them. So here we have three highly developed countries, you know, uh, and we can't protect ourselves from it. So uh, we're the ones who, who most probably think we're in control. Uh, so it, it's, you, you know, my old definition of of suffering was simply whenever you're not in control. And so now we're being forced to suffer, to recognize we can't change this, dang it. We can't make it right. I'm just so grateful that it isn't hitting the children because, yeah, I'm sure you are as parents, and it isn't hitting the children. So the message is coming to those of us who need it the most, I think. The adults who've who've spent much of our life trying to maintain perfect control. You can only do that by amassing money and position and power and status and wars. And those are all the things that we don't need to do. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in that same spirit of you are not con- in control, you know, I think a lot of us are feeling that as we're quarantined and sheltering in place, 
And Richard, I find great solace in that quote that you've shared on the podcast before and has, have written many times from Teresa of Lisieux, where she says, if you are willing to bear serenely the trial of being displeasing to yourself, you will be to Jesus a pleasant place of shelter. You memorized it. God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he didn't. How does this quote speak to you today in light of all that's happening? Well, let me say several things. Uh, about Scott Peck. I had lunch with him once, and you know, uh, he began that famous best-selling book, which uh, when it came out in the 80s, 70s, when was it? The Road Less Traveled. The first line in the book was, life is difficult. Sort of similar to my life is hard. And I, I thanked him for the book and told him I really appreciated it. And he had just come out with People of the Lie. And uh, he said, this one isn't selling nearly as well. Uh, People don't like being told that they like to look good more than be good. And that's a harder message, you know. And here I found this. He was not a, a Catholic psychologist, just a wise man quoting one of our Catholic saints, Therese of Lisieux. And he's the one who introduced me to that line that came from Scott Peck himself. And he said, he said it's one of the greatest pieces of spiritual wisdom he'd ever read. You know, uh, uh, that when you don't need to be pleasing even to yourself, he said that's what we all That's what makes us all do such stupid things. We want to think well of ourselves. I'm smart. I'm holy. I'm sensitive. Maybe that's the new one. I'm uh, discerning or whatever. He says that's what makes us become people of the lie. So if I remember right, it's in the very introduction of that book, uh, that quote that you just uh, gave us. And he said, it's, if we all would reflect on that, we wouldn't make our huge life mistakes because we're, we're making them wanting to appear to be something. And first of all, to ourselves. You know, I want to appear like I'm a, a tough leader. Or I want to appear like I'm a in-control uh, athlete, whatever it might be. First, we got to sell the lie to ourselves, And those of us who can do it really well can pull it off really well. But we usually create huge havoc for the people around us. So thanks for bringing that up. I didn't expect it. Yeah. Mm. And, and for memorizing it too, Paul. You did such a good job memorizing it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Brad. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> you know, as you're talking, I love this people of the lie. Um, this language, I think, is really apt for this moment because we have, in so many ways, preferenced the the prescription lens of the lie <laughs> and have chosen to see ourselves and each other through that lens. And one of the things I'm realizing is that... Um, for for folks who aren't used to 
the practice of contemplation, being quarantined is that first step into confronting that selfhood and and really not having anywhere to go or i mean i'm sure there and there are a million ways to distract yourself during this time so if you really don't want to see it you're not going to but there does seem to be a collective um veil drop of realizing okay we have a lot to see but i'm even noticing personally with friends who are who are texting or calling and saying oh my gosh I, I like feel like I'm losing my mind, you know, I'm stuck in this place and I'm stuck with the kids. And it's, you know, it, it's this experience that, that the monastics talk about of sort of that constriction kind of bearing in. And how, how can we work with that, Richard? How can we, how can not being in control and being constricted be a step into the beginning of a practice of contemplation for folks who, who, for whom that might be a new thing? What uh, limiting your space does is limit your opportunities for diversion and distraction and uh, novelty. And so you, you narrow it down. Probably right after I hang up with you here, I'll, I'll take Opie. He's sitting there waiting for his walk. And I have a, <laughs> a lovely backyard here with four huge cottonwood trees. And uh, I've been walking it every day for, for now a week, usually three or four times. And uh, this same space, it's not dramatic. It's lovely, but nothing dramatic about it. Uh, and I can tell you with certainty, uh, smaller and smaller things are entertaining me, <laughs> are, are uh, showing their beauty to me. Uh, it's just delightful to to see all these little seeds right now falling to the ground by the millions it seems uh and i'll be the only person who'll ever take delight in them i guess so any uh anything you can do to constrict your opportunities for diversion and distraction and you have to force it on yourself to say, this is enough, this is enough. And then when you find abundance in enoughness, you got it. Then you're, then you're, you're going to be uh, living in a, uh, a world of abundance that can't be taken from you. It's okay. You have to do that in a jail cell uh, to survive, I think. Well, I appreciate that you just, reference the cell because as last week when we talked about that monastic the sit in your cell and it will teach you everything that's what i hear you saying is that the the willingness and the will the willingness to embrace this time of constriction and to not just move into distraction um presents a real opportunity for attention mm -hmm. for attention to develop to where you see the seeds falling, to where you notice certain things that maybe you didn't notice before because we tend to operate life at such a you know, sense of urgency. So I really appreciate that invitation and I think it's really useful for us right now to consider, okay, before I just go into like, you know, Netflix binge mode, how can I take this next hour and actually embrace this constriction that I'm in and not seek to distract myself from it. Thank you. Thank you. 
you understand. <laughs> I was going to say, it's been amazing for me in the cell of my own home, how what a teacher irritation has been to me during this season mm. of what I'm being irritated by um, and, and what is that calling me to to respond or to show up with a different energy because those irritations that were, are seemingly so small, I'm watching them build and build and build if they go unchecked. Mm. Um, so if you let them go unchecked, if I let them go unchecked, they just continue to expand and they're a teacher that I cannot ignore anymore that I have to, to pay attention in a new way. It's kind of hard to imagine you grumpy, Paul. <laughs> I've never seen it. Well, you should have been in my house, but four minutes before we started this, you, you, you would have gotten a nice, a nice taste of that. <laughs> Got it. Um, shifting here to uh, our final one, which really does feel like a, a culmination of the four previous truths of you're going to die. Um, and that there's something in facing our own demise and actually like really feeling that in our own body that, that death loses its sting and our perspective shifts. Um, I'm wondering for you, Richard, knowing that you have been, you know, facing your own mortality in different ways, what has kind of learning to embody this truth taught you um, in your days when you think about, I'm going to die? Yeah, I guess I have a lot of times in recent years, so much so that I've begun to sort of take it for granted. Like I, I, uh, I thought if I did test positive, I really would feel God has prepared me for it very easily. It wouldn't be, wouldn't be hard. I'm not desiring to die, but I, I sure wouldn't be afraid of it anymore. Isn't it, in many ways, the realization of your own death, a confirmation that my life is not about me, this is not it. Now, once you know this little independent-looking thing is not the thing, it, they all, you could make the case that all five of these messages become the same message, just from a different angle of minimizing the imperial ego and getting it to participate in what Thomas Merton calls the general dance. To get us, once you get in the general dance, there's really nothing to be afraid of. And I, I know that sounds like a cliche, but I'm lucky enough because of the several cancer scares I've had and the heart attack, uh, to really believe that now. <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful freedom. And, and you shouldn't have that freedom yet. You both have two children to raise, you know. So you owe it to them to hold on to life, to want to hold on to life. And uh, yes, a lot of fathers and mothers have had to give that up. Can you imagine? Uh, knowing I'm not going to be here to raise my child if they're going to face their death. So I hope it doesn't come too soon to too many people on this earth. Uh, I, I do think um, that there's a, uh, a sense of, of, of lament that we need to name in terms of 
um, recognizing the the very real reality that this pandemic represents, and that all of us are going to lose someone, probably that we know. Um, I'll bet. Yeah, and I, I I think it's important because we're not a culture that can hold grief well, and we tend to gloss over it or distract ourselves. And um, you've spoken before about the importance of lament and, you know, liturgy, wishing that there was more liturgies of of lament. Um, How can we, without falling into despair, right, without toppling into that, that emotion um, that, that would cause us to lose our centeredness and our interconnection and our trust and hope, how can we also still recognize soberly and with with broken hearts the the grief that we are um, experiencing and the grief that others are experiencing? Even if if in this first wave we may not be directly impacted, the likelihood that we will um, should should help us turn toward each other and really compassionately notice um, and lament with others. But how how do we? How can we how can we lean in, lean into that a little bit more, Richard? Maybe this will help. I, I hope um, what we learned in the years of men's work because I did it for thirty some years was that the common phenomenon of older men thinking of themselves as angry old men, and a lot of them are. It's amazing with the gruff old man uh, is such a common metaphor in novels and movies and uh, so forth. But what we've discovered, and when I used to say it to the men, there would just be nods through the whole room. So much that passes for male anger is actually male sadness. Just hold on to that. But the male does not know how to feel sadness Admit that he's sad. Uh, He doesn't know the gentle uh, tenderness of grief. He can't cry like women can. He normally stuffs it. Um, Women can touch one another, and they normally do very quickly and very naturally when there's a tearful event right in front of them. They bond together. Men do none of those things. And um, it shows me how lacking in the art of lamentation the male is. And maybe, uh, you know, we make fun of, forgive me, hysterical women, four women, you know. Oh, geez. <laughs> forgive me, Bree, forgive me. I knew it was coming. I knew, I, the minute you said, yeah, I, I knew it. There it is. We got to drop one in per episode. <laughs> they had to carry the whole emotional burden for the family Because he wasn't in on the game. He was just standing there by the casket, Mm. you know. Stoic. Cold. And I've seen that far too often. So she throws herself on the casket, and everybody says, oh, isn't that way too much? Well, 
there, you just see when one part is missing, another part has to overplay its role. Is it even overplaying? I don't know that it is. But uh, the woman is much freer to lament in most cultures I went to than the male is. Uh, we, we just don't know how to feel grief. We don't know how to feel sadness. We try to triumph over it. Hmm. If you'll allow me, in these recent days, we've seen our president try to get beyond this catastrophe by Easter. <laughs> you know, immediately wanting to run to the solution so we don't have to walk through the 40 days, if I can put it that way. Hmm. Uh, let's get the economy going by Easter. This will make resurrection really meaningful. You, you have the terrible fear he doesn't have a clue what resurrection means. Because um, resurrection is not sadness denied, it's sadness transformed, which means you feel the sadness. You suffer it. So I, I don't know if I answered your question. I hope somehow I did. Yeah, and I... I th I think yeah what one of the things that I am hearing and what you're saying is that in this in this moment of collective initiation we're having to die to a certain way of living and much of what I'm hearing you say is is actually applicable to a you know the patriarchal power over dynamic that we've just gotten accustomed to as the way of reality and the invitation for us through this time of of suffering and of constriction is an initiation into um a, i'll use the language of feminine way of life which is more of an interconnected wholeness um relational way of of seeing each other where we recognize you know we're, we're it's not all about us it, it is about the community we can seat the self in the web of the whole and in that place, it has meaning. Mm. Very good. Yep. Uh. I, I was reminded of um, this, this quote by the, the conservationist Aldo Leopold, where he talks about, we grieve only for what we know. And he said that in the context of losing one wildflower. And I think mm. about that in, we can only only grieve the things that we truly know and are not trying to separate ourselves from. We were a part of the system. We ha the only way that we can truly let go of it is if we, we grieve that sense of what, how that brought us here, the gifts and, and the heartache and, and the trauma, but to truly know it at, at its deepest level, to be able to grieve it properly and to lament it so that we can see this opportunity of, of the death of one epoch and potentially a, a step into the next one. Yeah. I think it's a major missing link piece in the Christian religion that we never created liturgies of lamentation, that we never said there's a spiritual way to be sad. There's a transformative way of being sad together even. And it isn't just running to solving the problem. It's leaving the problem unsolved and tragic and sitting in the tragedy. 
I used to use, if you remember Paul on the rights, I'd say the image of Job sitting on the dung heap, picking at his sores. Uh, he's just wow. sitting in it. He's, he's not fixing it. Mm -mm. That's a different wow. kind of liturgy. Mm -hmm. uh, we, someone's got to create them. And mm -hmm. I'm not the only one saying mm -hmm. that. Liturgies of lamentation. Yeah. Well, Richard, you find yourself with, with a lot of time on your hands these days. So <laughs> just going to suggest once again that you could be the author of such liturgies if you wanted. <laughs> Keep calling and wanting podcasts. Well, as we close, Richard, um, I, I wanted to ask, as we did last week, if you would be willing to lead us as a community in prayer um, to, to help us feel deeply connected to each other, but um, uh, also as we consider the ways in which this moment is a collective initiation, um, would you... Would you lead us in prayer? I'd be honored. Surround us. Support us. Sustain us. We don't know how to walk through this. We don't know how to understand this. We don't know how to feel this. We don't know. We all feel out of control. We all feel a certain threat to our own life. May this be a time of global initiation. Initiate us, Lord, into what's real, what lasts, what matters, what is good. We thank you for these few minutes we've had together. May they somehow offer some hope, some comfort, some consolation to those who hear these words. And may they not just be words. We ask this with our own hope, our own desire. In Jesus' name and all of the good names of God. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.